Well, what an introduction, right? It's all about the grandkids at this age, right? Um, we had a beautiful time with the whole Webster clan, my wife's side of the family's Websters, and they've all got multiple children who have all had grandchildren, with a few exceptions, namely my son, and uh, it's just a whole slew of them now, and it's really a lot of fun uh, to see those grandkids. I couldn't even keep track of them. Uh, they were so many. One of the challenges of these uh, summer series is you don't know who has gone before you and what they said uh, and who's going to go after you, and you don't want to steal anybody's thunder. And the topics this year are pretty wide open as far as what direction you can take. But they all have one thing in common, and that is that they want you to focus on this virtual world that we live in. Uh, the fact that uh, in my lifetime, we have gone from uh, selectrics, you know, electric typewriters, uh, with maybe the capability to backspace 50 spaces or so, uh, to uh, computers that you can fit in the, in the palm of your hand is amazing. And the ability for us to, uh, and when I was debating in high school, to uh, catalog information, to be able to do extemporaneous speaking or to engage in a, in a debate over a specific topic, you would read two or three of the top magazines like Time Magazine or Newsweek or if you remember U.S. News and World Report, right? Where'd that one go? And they uh, would, we would collect quotes by cutting them out of the magazines and gluing them to index cards and then carrying literally dozens of filing cabinets. Anybody an ex-debater from high school know what I'm talking about? And, and these, these, uh, these cabinets full of information, evidence, quotes, were at your fingertips and you had all kinds of ways to organize and index them so you could find just the right quote to make just the right argument. Now... They can, you know, pick up their phone and Google it, and they get the answer instantly. I mean, the, the, the way society has changed just in the last 50 years is quite remarkable. And I don't think we've seen the end of it. I think we're, it's now sort of exponentially growing. And yet that virtual world that we call the Internet is, is become part of, our, our, part of who we are, part of our identity. And it's important as Christians that we make sure that we are still um, glorifying God, um, doing as Christ would do, being as Christ-like as we can um, in the virtual world as well as in this uh, everyday world. In fact, your exposure in the virtual world is probably greater than your exposure in this physical world to the neighbors and friends around you. How many of you raise your hand if you know your neighbor by name? One neighbor. And keep them up if you know the neighbors on both sides by name. A few hands went down. How about the folks across the street? Keep them up if you, you know they'll cross the street. A few more hands go down. It's hard to know. How many people know everybody on your street? Just, just your street. Anybody? Ah, that's a pretty high, tall tale. But online, you got, apparently, allegedly, you got thousands of friends, thousands of connections, and you don't just know their name, you don't just know their address, you've seen the latest pictures from their latest family reunion. 
right? You know when their grandchild is born or you know when their daughter gets buried because they've posted it all over their social media. It's amazing how much contact we have with the world through the uh, virtual internet. Now, so when I got this topic, and the topic is doing good in the virtual world, there's a lot of directions I could have gone. But I thought what I would do is share with you some, some thoughts that I've been, I've been doing a lot of reading, a lot of thinking and studying about this new phenomenon that is called the cancel culture. And the idea of a woke culture is radically changing the, the way our society, especially here in the United States, thinks. And I wanted to sort of think about how does a Christian go about doing good in the context of this woke culture which dominates social media. On Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, um, they will use those tools to try to craft a narrative and they censor, they call out, they, they cancel anyone who, who speaks contrary to the narrative that they want to present. And they uh, claim that if you aren't sensitive enough to that, then you're not woke. But if you are sensitive and concerned about social justice issues and racial injustices and other things that fit their narrative, then you are woke. And so this whole phenomenon and, and, and this culture that's being created just in the last few years on the Internet um, is, is a context in which we as Christians are continuing to live and, and interact with our friends and neighbors. And I think we need to spend some time, and I thought we could spend some time tonight, thinking about how do we do that? How do we do good in the context of this new cancel culture? Uh, when should we speak up? Uh, when should we express our disapproval of things that we know God has taught us are sinful? Uh, do we join in the masses uh, in their withdrawal of support from public figures or participate in the mass shaming of, of certain celebrities who have done something or said something that is uh, deemed offensive or harmful? And at the outset, I, I want to point out that the world didn't invent cancel culture. In fact, the New Testament teach, taught, has taught for thousands of years um, the fact that as Christians, we're to practice a kind of calling out uh, that uh, is similar to what they're trying to achieve in this new cancel culture. The problem is that the world's version of cancel culture doesn't adhere to the biblical pattern and ignores many of the important God-given principles that should uh, guide your, your, your behavior when you're trying to decide how and when and who to call out and shake up and say, you've got to wake up, you've got to change uh, because the, what you're doing or what you're saying is wrong. And uh, there's this desperate need, I think, in, in, for Christians to uh, not hijack, but to learn how to navigate this cancel culture in a way that will glorify God, but in a way that um, is, is mindful of our obligations to do something very similar in terms of not uh, promoting what is wrong, uh, to speaking out against what is wrong, to uh, making sure that our reputations are what they are and what they should be, and, and it's not easy. Uh, and so that's what I hope to uh, tonight to speak to. 
So the practice of calling out wrongdoers and canceling them, if you will, is in my judgment, and I hope to show you tonight, not in and of itself unbiblical. To the contrary, I think the Bible teaches that we need to expose sin to the light. There was a recent article in the Washington Post advocating for a federal law. There are a few states that have passed this law, but they were promoting, they were advocating the passage of a federal law to make it a a legal requirement that Facebook and and Instagram and Twitter and any other uh, social media platform be required to, at the push of a button, wipe out, erase all of your past posts. And the reason why is because you were stupid when you were younger and you started posting stuff you shouldn't have been posting that's embarrassing or worse. And that if it's not erased, it could be brought up against you when you try to get it admitted to a college or try to get a job or um, some other. you run for political office. And so the thought is that we need to be able to just erase all of that at the push of a button so that none of that history, none of those archive posts that you made when you were a teenager or in in your early 20s or or whatever can be used against you later. And I got to thinking about that. And I concluded that I'm not sure that's a good idea. I think that we need to recognize that it may be the fact that something you post might actually come to light. The the, the possibility that it could be used against you later may keep you from posting certain stuff, certain photos, making certain statements online. And so the fact that it might come to light keeps you from doing more sin, more uh, inappropriate behavior, if you will. And I think that's what the Bible teaches as well. Remember in John chapter 3, where Jesus is talking about uh, where they're talking about how Jesus is coming to the world and how He's the light. And it makes this statement in John chapter 3, verse 19, that people love darkness, that people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Right, And that's what I'm talking about here. That there is a, a certain reality that you sort of uh, uh, reflect your character, you reflect your beliefs online, and what you say, if you know it's going to be exposed to the light, maybe uh, you'll self-censor and control yourself a little bit and keep, keep it in check, as opposed to if you knew that with a push of a button it could be wiped away. We know this is the case because there have been certain social media platforms that have been created, especially for younger generations, that allow you right to take a photo, totally inappropriate, and then it disappears after a few seconds, after you shared it with a friend. Or uh, make a statement, and uh, that will disappear after a friend has seen it. And and that that encourages a lot of uh, inappropriate behavior. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 uh, makes a similar observation. It says in verse 17, those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Why is that? Because you can get away with it without people scrutinizing you and seeing things that are right, certain things that are wrong, and it's a shame that people are doing wrong, uh, and, and yet we need to call sin, sin. We've got to be willing to expose it. But, of course, the New Testament provides a lot of guidelines on how were to do that. 
that yes, I think we are called to rebuke and admonish and uh, uh, even engage in church discipline and, and uh, withdraw fellowship um, for those, from those that are uh, habitually and, and unrepentingly sinning. But there's a, a lot of process, a lot of rules and principles that Scriptures give us and to be able to do that in a way that is uh, going to be glorifying God. And I think that's one of the things that today's cancel culture is missing. It is, for example, uh, in the New Testament, there's a lot said about how we must be calling out a person for the right reason. And in today's cancel culture, they are calling people out and canceling them and writing them off and pronouncing judgment against them without mercy. And there's no room for forgiveness. There's no second chances. If you made a mistake, if you said something you shouldn't have 17 years ago, and we can find a copy of it and post it on social media, we will blackball you for life. That's missing a very basic ingredient in the biblical way of calling people out. And, and that is that it's not for the right reason. The reason why you call out someone when they do wrong and try to get their attention about it is so that they'll change. Is so that they'll repent. And you always leave open the possibility of forgiveness and second chances. And so that's an example of how this cancel culture today is unbiblical because it's not adhering to all the ethical rules that should guide it. And so I, I want to um, remind us of verses like James chapter 5, which makes clear the purpose of calling someone out. It says, My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth, Verse 19 says, and someone brings him back. So you turn him, you bring him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering, he is lost, he's off course, he's a sinner, and you call sin, sin, but your motive is different because what you know, what you should know, is that if you bring him back, you will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It's not about writing him off. It's not about canceling them. It's if you call someone down uh, for, for something they're doing wrong that they're refusing to repent of, the reason why you do that is so that they'll change, so that they will repent, so that they will uh, uh, make, make right their relationship with God. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is a very well-known passage on church discipline and, and, and disfellowshipping. And one of the points it makes in verse uh, 5 is that you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your goal, your purpose should be to save them, right? Uh, and, and cause them to repent. But that requires a lot of godly wisdom. It requires... What, if I was to use one word to describe it, it would be I would say it's discernment on how to know how to go about doing it. Um, Jude chapter 22 through 23 talks about how there's different approaches to dealing with people that are engaging in sinful lives. Verse 22 says, "Have mercy on those who doubt." Somebody that's given up the, their, their, the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, doesn't believe God exists. They're, they're doubting something that's critical to the faith. It says, have mercy on them. 
Verse 23 says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Sometimes you, 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 you're patient with them and you give them a long period of time to try to grow and mature spiritually. But other times, if they're on the brink of disaster, the solution is quick and it's immediate and it's taking drastic action necessary to try to keep them from falling off the cliff. You snatch them, right? Uh, but then it goes on to say, to others, show mercy with fear. Fear of what? Fear for yourself, lest you yourself fall, right? It's, it's the idea that we need to remember that we need to be, have, be merciful and forgiving towards one another and not judgmental of one another because the same standard by which you judge another, God's going to judge you one day. And then it finishes up saying, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. The way we would express that today is we'd say, you hate the sin, not the sinner, right? And so this is just one or two verses that give you sort of the complexity that there isn't a, a simple, easy, uh, scorched earth, draconian policy that you apply every time, anytime you see anyone sinning. It doesn't work that way. If it did, elders would be a whole lot easier job, wouldn't it? A whole lot easier. Unfortunately, it requires a lot more godly wisdom and patience and love and discernment. And that's what I hope for you to see tonight. But let me back up to this cancel culture thing. Because the irony of this uh, cancel culture today is that it's really not doing a whole lot of canceling. In fact, it's doing the exact opposite. It's preventing people from being held morally accountable for the personal sin in their lives. Many of the most popular tools in today's woke culture are doing the exact opposite of admonishing and rebuking and telling people they got to change their ways. There is, um, for example, something called a safety zone. Uh, Y'all know what a safe zone is. Well, in today's woke culture, they are trying to clear the way of anything that might upset someone, especially our children. And so on, uh, in public schools and on college campuses and even in uh, workplaces, there are uh, spaces that they refer to as safe zones where you aren't allowed to challenge anybody ideologically, where you aren't allowed to say anything negative or anything emotionally uh, challenging that might uh, cause offense or make them feel unsafe. And we're expected instead to issue what are known as trigger warnings. You ever heard of a trigger warning? So teachers are trained on this now before the beginning of each school year and students are given policies and employees are required to sign policies that, that make it clear that if you're going to do or say anything or post anything or, or put anybody in a situation that might make them feel uncomfortable, you got to warn them ahead of time that, hey, this may trigger you. Emotionally, you may have this, this violent physio physiological or psychological response to what you're going to be exposed to. And let me give you one example. This morning, I'm watching the news, uh, and they had a little uh, story about the U.S. National Archive. Anybody been to the National Archive in D.C. to see the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, Declaration of Independence. Wonderful building. Well, there was a study released on April 20th by the uh, National Archive Task Force about the rotunda. Y'all know what I'm talking about? When you first walk into this building, this is the picture that you see. And that's one mural on one side of the rotunda, which is a circular area, sort of a big foyer to the building, right? And there's a similar picture across from it. 
And so this task force was convened because, uh, well, let me quote from the report. Here's the report. Uh, The rotunda in our flagship building that lauds wealthy white men in the nation's founding, a la the founding fathers, it lauds wealthy white men in the nation's founding while marginalizing BIPOC women and other communities. Y'all know what BIPOC is? That's blacks, indigenous, and people of color. B-I-P-O-C. Okay? And, and this is what the report says. That this mural of our founding fathers, all of whom you probably know their names, right, is marginalizing blacks, indigenous people, people of color, and women. And therefore, the report goes on to say that, that uh, this is uh, an example of structural racism and we need to reimagine reimagine an historical mural of real people. Reimagine the rotunda to add a trigger warning saying a trigger warning attempts to forewarn audiences of content that may cause intense physiological and psychological symptoms. So they want a sign on the outside of the rotunda saying, warning, when you enter, you may see murals and all the founding fathers happen to be white men. And so that may really hurt your feelings. Now, I'm not trying to be insensitive here. I'm trying to help you see that they have created an environment in which historical pictures are now offensive. To the point that when they have a big fundraiser and Pelosi and others come and speak at it, this is what they do with a PowerPoint projector on top of the mural. Because you've got to make room for women. So they just added, this was in 2019, they, they sort of photoshopped with a visual on top of the mural for the dinner, uh, the wives of some of these founding fathers, just to sort of balance out the gender issue. That doesn't address the BIPOC, does it? That doesn't address the blacks, the indigenous, and the people of color. But, you know, better than what was before, is their argument. Now, why do I give you this as an example? Because it just came up today, and so I thought, well, let's, let's, let's just see where this one goes. But what you got to understand is this is not just an incident. If this was just the only problem that they had with some uh, picture in D.C., that'd be okay. They're ready to wipe out all the paintings, all the statues, anything that isn't consistent with their narrative uh, of society and and their view of what is offensive. And so what's happening is since about 2013 on college campuses, College students are being told um, that they don't have to tolerate any history, any information, any ideology, any pictures that make them feel uncomfortable. Instead, uh, they can refuse to attend a conservative speaker's lecture on their campus. No, more than that, they can try to heckle them and keep them from coming to campus and protest against the administration until they are uninvited and they can try to prevent others from attending that event. Now, there's a difference between an unsafe environment where you are being physically harassed or you are being objectively abused in some way, verbally or physically, and you trying to be safe from any kind of ideological challenges. Being 
being safe and, 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 and exempt from anyone suggesting that maybe what you're doing is not right. That, there's a world of difference, if you can follow me, between um, physical safety and emotional or ideological safety. And the, our culture is blurring that line. And what used to be clear, what bullying was, what harassment was, what abuse was, it was clear. There was an objective standard, and it, it, and it needed to be something that would rise to the level that would make it difficult, not impossible for you to do your job or to go to school or something like that. It's now very subjective. Anything that you feel is offensive is offensive and outlawed. And so as a result of this shift in culture, we've created this really difficult situation in which it's really hard for Christians to tell the truth, to speak plainly, to preach the gospel anymore. And, and we need to understand that because they're going to interpret plain Bible preaching as confrontational, as offensive, as unchristlike, as unloving. And it's, and it's not just them, it's our entire culture that's creating this this teaching this kind of mentality. Now, I'll tell you a story about a friend of mine who you see on CNN some quite often. His name's Van Jones. He and I are about as far apart politically as you can imagine. But we went to school together. And so at, at Yale Law School, they had a big four-year area, and there's one great big wall called The Wall. And you could literally post anything up there. No matter how offensive, nobody would censor it. You, it was total freedom of speech. And that's how we were trained. That, that we were trained that you should allow the free exchange of ideas and let truth prevail. And so even though he and I are about as far apart politically as possible, we agree on this point. And as a result, when he was asked about this new woke culture, which is, as a culture, is trying to keep people from challenging each other and debating and thinking about things they hadn't thought about, he says, wait a minute. He says, I can't pave the jungle for you. He says, I, I can't take all the weights out of the weight room. You need that kind of, of friction. You need that kind of challenge. You need that kind of, of confrontation and, and, and in order for you to grow. Let me explain it with analogy. Uh, there's a safe space sign there. Um, this guy is an astronaut. Okay, he's a, uh, in, 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 uh, he's a specimen of, of being in good physical condition. But when he gets into space, what's he still got to do? He's still got to exercise. Why? Because as human beings, if we have muscles, and if we don't work those muscles, they, there's a process called atrophy, and our muscles deteriorate, Right? And what I'm suggesting to you is that you, as human beings, we physically, emotionally, and most of all spiritually need to be challenged and worked. Because if you don't, you will deteriorate. You will atrophy. Now, um, everybody got your vaccines? Raise your hand if you had a vaccine. Oh, there's not a lot of hands up here. What? what, what? Okay, Do I need to get my mask. Now, I'm double vaccinated. You, you got, got two? How does that work? Did I get some protection from COVID-19 by staying away from it? By never being exposed to it? Is that how vaccines work? Where's Robert? 
where I, I got to look for a gray head somewhere. There he is, way back there. Is that how it works? No. The way a vaccine works is you've got to be exposed to the, the problem. Now, not in the full dosage, right? But you have to have some exposure to it because then that activates your body to kick in the defensive mechanisms and hopefully uh, build up some immunity. Uh, our immune system grows stronger in response to those kinds of, of things like viruses. You don't just completely avoid and hope that you uh, will then have some kind of response. Instead, you won't. You'll be vulnerable. If you never eat dirt as a kid, it's not a good thing. Moms, you want your kid out there playing and getting a little dirty and eating something that you have no idea what he just swallowed. Right? Why? Because he's going to strengthen his immune system. He's going to develop some antibodies. He's going to have the capability to withstand a greater threat later on. And that's what I'm talking about. Um, let me give you one more. Well, wait, let me save that one. Uh, this weekend, we got all these grandkids running around the cabin, uh, around a lake, and there's a bunch of them, okay? I mean, there was, what, seven, eight little toddlers, just little, little things running around. And I'm like, this is a disaster waiting to happen. I mean, they could fall, they could, you know, trip, they could... So I got to baby-proof the whole, what, cabin? No, 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 the whole yard, what, the whole peninsula, the dock, the pier. I mean, how do you protect your children, Right? Well, think about it. how do children work? There are are they fragile, or are they uh, uh, anti-fragile? And I want to argue is that children are human beings, and human beings are not like glassware that if you drop it once, it shatters and it'll never recover. Right? You can't put it back together again. They're designed by God to be able to grow from falling down. I gotta let little Roman trip and fall a few times in order for him to learn his balance, in order for him to learn to walk, right? If I would never let him take those risks, he would never grow. And that is what I'm hoping that you can see is, is sort of the analogy I'm trying to draw. And so let me let me bring it home with this. This last year, well, a few years ago, there was a study conducted by a psychologist at the San Diego University, State University, um, who was studying. Um, rates of depression and, and anxiety and suicide from generation to generation. And this latest generation that they studied, the uh, Generation Z, Gen Z, those are folks uh, born after 1995, had the highest rate of depression, the highest rate of anxiety, and the highest rate of suicide of any generation in recent history. What's up with that? All these helicopter parents have been taking care of them and watching after them for everything, so how can they possibly be worse off for it? Let me suggest my theory. It's peanut butter theory. Do y'all remember when Shelby was in elementary school? So this was a while ago, back in the early 90s, okay? Do y'all remember the days when you show up at an elementary school to visit your kids for lunch, and there was this one table where all the people with any kind of peanut product were quarantined. Do y'all remember this? And, and you weren't allowed to bring peanut butter and jelly sandwiches into the main cafeteria area. Because why? There might be one kid with a peanut allergy. And he could have a serious, serious reaction. Now, Shelby's allergic to fire ants, so we should have, under that theory, moved away from Alabama because they got plenty of them, right? 
But this theory that was carried out as like a social experiment, right, for years in the early 90s, was conducted after public school, after public school, after public school in the 1990s. But in 2015, they looked back at all these kids that had been sheltered and protected from any exposure to peanuts, right? And they found that the results were the exact opposite. Young people who avoided all exposure to peanuts and peanut products developed uh, peanut products were more than five times as likely to develop peanut and other food allergies. Why? Because it turns out the cure is worse than the cause in the, of the disease in the first place. And so the idea is that you cannot avoid anything that you might feel uncomfortable uh, and grow uh, and build up yourself uh, in that way. There is, uh, in my judgment, a very important role that robust debate plays uh, in our life, especially spiritually, uh, in growing. Now, that said, let me give you just a handful of quick principles to keep in mind when you are um, thinking about as a Christian how to navigate this culture in which the average person is going to be offended by your conservative values nowadays. They are going to find you unloving, unchristlike, and, and, and misunderstand where you're coming from. So let me give you this, a few principles. Number one, maintain a good reputation. You do have a responsibility to care what other people think. And this is, this is something that I think as Christians we get a little blind to. And as long as my brothers and sisters here in Delray to understand where I'm coming from, I don't care what the rest of the world thinks. Wrong. You do. You should, as a disciple of Christ, care. You've got to work on your reputation in the world. Let me give you a couple passages for this. Write down, if you, you take notes, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, great passage on canceling, on disfellowshipping, and withdrawing fellowship from folks that are sinning, right? But listen to the first verse. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Right? You should care what other people are saying about you. It's a shame if you yourselves are guilty of sin. Now, there's a better point in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7. It's about elders. But do you remember what one of the qualifications are for an elder? Elders must have a good reputation. You know that one? But if you look at the verse, who's it with? A good reputation among who? Outsiders. Not just the circle of friends here at Delrada. These elders need to, is to be qualified to be leaders and shepherds of this flock, need to have a good reputation outside the flock. Interesting, isn't it? I think those are things we should aspire to as Christians, not just as elders. Mahat Gandhi said, uh, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Right? It's a shame. We need to be able to stand before the world and be salt and light and good examples. Romans 12 verse 18 says, it's an important qualification. It says, if possible... As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And so that implies that there will be times people aren't just, just aren't going to like you. 
That because of your stand for Christ, because of your fidelity, because your light is so bright and they hate the light, they're not going to like you. And so that's an important qualification to keep in mind to my first rule, that you need to have a good reputation among the world, and that is to the extent possible. Right? you got to be at peace with men. Um, second rule. If you're going to have a good reputation, it's going to be uh, reflective of you, of not what you're against. It's going to be reflective of what you're for. It's going to be reflect not only of what you say you're for, but what you do. You have got to, as my topic for tonight is, do good. Right? You have to... To develop the right reputation among the world, this church needs to be doing good works, period, full stop. Let that sink in for a second. Because it is so easy to let just your defense mechanisms and your reaction to the world spend up all your energy. You can think about everybody that's doing wrong and talk about them days on end and never get around to you doing right. And we have got to, as a people, understand that your reputation that's so important to God is going to be reflected on what you do, not just what you say and not just what you're against. There's some verses I'd suggest you, you make a note of and read when you have more time. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15 says, Your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. You stand up for the truth on social media and somebody's going to make some foolish accusation against you. The only response to that is not you fighting back with foolish responses to them. That's not going to get you anywhere. The only way you're going to be able to respond to that is your honorable lives will silence them. What you do will make all the difference. Now, uh, it goes on in the next verse, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, to say, live, do, live as people who are free. Free from what? Free from sin. People that have died to self and are living for Christ. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Get the point. As a Christian, we need to be asking ourselves, am I being canceled? Am I being called out? Am I being censored on social media because of my stand for the truth? Because of what I do? Or is it because of something I did wrong? Or something that I said that wasn't appropriate? And it makes all the difference because according to the Lord, if you're being punished because of wrongdoing, then you deserved it. Okay? But if you're being punished because of the cause of Christ, you will be blessed for that. Now, third point, because we're running out of time. Um, I got to read this verse, though. Go to chapter 3 of 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 16. Listen to this. You got to have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior, there it is, do good works in Christ, may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if it should be God's will than for doing evil. That's the point I was trying to make there. All right. So third point, last point, is you've got to exercise good judgment. So you should be trying, you should care what the world thinks, and you've got to do good because doing good is the, is, the, is the answer to silencing them. And then the third point, though, is that you still are going to have to do the hard work of rebuking and admonishing and disfellowshipping and calling out and sin, sin, 
But there's a lot of wisdom that's required. And to do that, you're going to have to judge, exercise good judgment. Um, listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, because I don't have time to expand on all this tonight. But I want you to just get the basic idea. You cannot approach social media in this virtual world as a Christian with an with a axe to grind and try to just scorch earth policy. You need to remember the starting point for a Christian is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. You know what it says? Honor everyone. Everyone? Even that guy? Even those people doing that? Honor everyone. Especially the brothers. And then at the end of the verse it says, and honor the king. You want to talk about the most reprobate guy in town, the one who's using all of his power and all of his influence, not just to be unchristlike, but to actually attack Christians? It's this guy. And what did he say do? Honor him. We are all made in the image of God. And therefore we are all, no matter how reprobate, we are all owed certain level of dignity and respect. You have to honor them as people made in God's creation in order to have any chance of changing them and turning them. Now, there's, it goes beyond honor and it goes to the idea of, of knowing that you need to be focused not outward but inward. All these verses like 1 Corinthians 5 uh, or uh, 2 Thessalonians 3 or Titus uh, 3 verse 10 or 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 5, all these verses about disfellowshipping and withdrawing and calling out and marking people. What kind of people were they? All people in the church. Our focus when it comes to canceling is something that we do first with our own. Taking care of our own house before we look outward. If you want to know who is right for for being canceled, being withdrawn fellowship from, it is very clear in Scripture that we're talking about Christians who are gone wayward and they refuse to repent under the Matthew 18 three-step process, that are disobedient, that are dis un unruly, that are deceitful and trying to deceive and create problems in the church. Those are the folks that you cancel. You don't go out there and pick on some group or some individual who's living a life of sin and try to start canceling them. What's the point of that? You're trying to build a bridge to them to introduce them to Christ. You're trying to create a relationship with them. The point is in Scripture that once you've built a relationship, then you use that relationship to encourage them and admonish them and rebuke them. And that means you've got to be in a relationship with them. You can't cancel folks outside the group. You've got to only focus on your community because it's the only ones you can cancel effectively. The only ones you can disfellowship are the ones you're in fellowship with in the first place. Does that make sense? And so as Christians, we need to be mindful that this world is our hospital. This, this world are folks that we're supposed to be reaching out to, not pushing away. And we need to use social media, not just as a platform to, to teach the truth, but to show them that we're practicing the truth and build a relationship with the world and bring and make them desire what, what the truth is. It's one thing for them to rationally see the truth of what you're saying and not be able to respond with a, a, a rational argument to refute what you're saying. But it's another thing to make them want what you're saying, to desire it. And the only way to do that is to build relationships and that's what you've got to have before you can engage in, in uh, anything else. Um, and so, 
The last point I'll make, I, 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 is, I know we're out of time, is this. Canceling, what I'm calling canceling, which is sort of withdrawing fellowship from, is not just uh, something that you do um, in the church, but it's something that you need to understand the purpose of it is not to shame people, right? There's this great verse in... Um, uh, uh, Sorry. For Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. It, 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 says, um, uh, it says to speak the truth in love. And when you're trying to figure out what that means, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14 says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have been countless guides in Christ... You do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. 1 Thessalonians 2 says the same thing. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you. What's the point? The point of me calling someone out that is wayward is not to shame them. It is for me to show them love. As Ephesians says, to speak the truth in love, the love of a father. The same way I would discipline my child because I want them to do better, I want what's best for them, is the same motivation you should have when you engage in, in any kind of withdrawal fellowshipping in the church. I'm going to stop there, and I want to share some things with you in the invitation, uh, but uh, I appreciate everybody's kind attention.